Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, it's me, your local ER doc, just back from fresh back from Thailand. And this is Praz the Sandman, helping you escape from the clutches and traps of consciousness every day over the radio waves. Praz, I just take a stiff drink for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have the stiffest you can get. (laughs) All right, guys, and we are officially below the belt, less than 10 seconds into the episode. Oh, good. Okay. PG monitor. (laughs) Yes. Or at least PG-13. Well, without Dr. Santosh here, it falls on me to be at least the semi-responsible one, a role that I hate, Uh, by the way. It makes me feel like some kind of evil supervillain, which is perfect because, do you know what I've been doing this last week as Chicago slowly ices itself in? I know you weren't watching football. (laughs) Sports ball. (laughs) No, come on. I know that everyone in the country is rooting for the Rams, but in between... I was watching a James Bond film marathon. Are you guys Bond fans? I'd say I'm a bandwagon Bond fan from time to time. I was, but I feel like they're putting out less and less Bond films now. Like, remember back in the 90s and 2000s? There used to be a Bond film every other year. Well, it looks like pop culture may have finally killed Bond off, at least for the moment. But I thought it'd be really fun to go into... All the many ways that Bond villains have attempted to kill Bond and or were killed themselves. So the next several episodes are going to be a supervillain series where we're going to talk about what would actually happen if someone attempted or suffered from these things. And I don't know, what is, Ward, what is your favorite Bond film? 
Uh, I want to say my favorite Bond film was the the one where with Dame Judi Dench and the and the and the Venice canals. It's because it's, it was the last one shown. It's the only one I remember. <laughs> Let me be serious. I, I think I feel like um, Daniel Craig as a Bond as a James Bond is more relatable than some of the previous Bond actors. I agree. He did a very good job because he's serious and he doesn't take take himself too seriously, but he commits to the role. The previous Bonds, like the Pierce Brosnan Bond, and oh gosh, who, yeah. Sean Connery was a Bond at, at one time, right? A Bond. Sean Connery was the Bond, good sir. The Bond. <laughs> but before before my times, and really before your times, Josh, Doctor Josh. But I felt like they've set up expectations where it's it was just very difficult to to to, to relate to. I mean, they're they're both good in bed. They are both good on their jobs. They both do amazingly dark things, and yet they are able to somehow still function as humans with a sense of humor. I, I feel like that's just difficult to relate to. I mean, they're functioning alcoholics, which has been covered in other episodes. But yeah, don't ever try and drink as it much as James well. Bond. You'll just, no. you're, you'll die. Although alcohol is the most likely thing to kill James Bond, one of my favorites was the movie Dr. No, a historic Bond, and one that really scared the public about nuclear power because it involved, first off, trying to take over the space program, which I like. Really? Hiroshima didn't do it? <laughs> um, this is in the 1950s. So after the, after the horrors of war, when people were scared about nuclear power as opposed to nuclear weapons. So ah. there was a lot of concern over how safe this was. And right around this time, the James Bond movie Dr. No comes out mm-hmm. where the villain, Dr. No, ends up using a nuclear-powered island base to attempt to hijack a space launch. So you got all the major landmarks of the 50s and 60s in there. And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, Dr. No falls drowns. into the nuclear reactor and drowns. Okay, all right, all right. He drowns. Also from the more modern Bonds, if you guys remember The World is yes, Not with Enough, Pierce with uh, Denise Richards as a nuclear scientist. Yeah, Christmas Jones, they also had a flooded reactor on a nuclear sub. So today, it got me thinking, what if you actually fell or were pushed Gee, into a probably nuclear wouldn't reactor? Turn into the thing. What would happen to you? Well, for one thing, nuclear reactors... If we remember from Fukushima and um, a few other nuclear reactors, they're usually they're usually strategically placed next to sources of abundant water, right? Because they need the water to cool down the nuclear reactors. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an extremely exothermic or you know a reaction that creates a lot of heat. So I'm guessing most of the water containers, at least after they've come into the cooling tank or cooling mechanism, would be boiling hot. In fact, that's one of the. In fact, that's one of the problems with um, environmental impact with nuclear reactors that they dump a lot of super hot water into their surrounding environment. So I'm guessing they would, if he were to fall into one of those reactors, um, he'd probably be boiled alive. That would be my guess. Is that what happened to Doctor No? Pros, I made you watch that clip. Cool. He was very. I mean, he very much submerged, and he appeared to completely disintegrate. From what I could tell. And and I wanted to know, is this what would actually happen? Because I don't really know that much about nuclear energy in terms of how it works. So the answer to this was 
surprisingly hard to track down. And as a result, I'm now probably on several government watch lists because the difference between fell into a nuclear reactor and pushed into a nuclear reactor is apparently vast and suspicious. So you shouldn't use the Google, what's that, incognito mode. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what's wrong with this guy? Why can't he just watch porn like the rest of us? Exactly. Um, So the vast majority of nuclear reactors today have water under very, very high pressure. And that's because nuclear power reactors generate electrical energy with steam from heating large tanks of water, which are heated almost instantaneously and continuously by atomic fission. So in an operating nuclear reactor, there is literally no way for a person to fall in. It's like falling into a sealed pressure cooker. But if the coolant was low and the reactor had to be refueled, it would be removed, and then the water would be hot but not actively boiling. It may also be mildly radioactive, but surprisingly, the danger is minimized the further you are from the source. So if the source is like way at the bottom of a 60-foot tank and you fall in just at the top and climb out, you're actually not getting that much radiation. Second-degree burns? Absolutely. Hmm. But radiation enough to melt the skin off your bones? No. Maybe maybe it's not even that hot. Maybe it's like a yes. pleasant spa, like 102 degrees at the top. The only thing we have to go on is when it is opened, the water would not be actively boiling because all that steam would have released. So you could get scalded by right, the steam. Right. You could fall into water, and depending on when and how far right. you're falling. So if you fall from right. a high enough uh, height, you could very easily get much closer to the radiation and much more dangerous levels. So... How does this match up? What do you think? Did did Doctor Doom well, portray an accurate death for our uh, robot-handed scientist? Oh, which is not in the clip I showed you. But for those of you playing along, Doctor No was famous for his robot hands. Both hands, both of them, prosthetic metal hands oh, due to radiation exposure. Yeah, I mean, they <laughs> portrayed him hazard. dying. I get it. Yeah. Like, it was the seventies. To be very, very hot, or at least yeah. boiling um, fluid, you know. I don't know if that was supposed to be water or radioactive fluid, but it sounds like in real life they wouldn't be near fluids even close to being that hot. Right. Exactly. It wouldn't have been a swimming pool like it is in the movie. It would have looked more like an Instapot. Well, my, my problem is at, at sea level, water has a boiling temperature of a, you know, uh, 100 degrees Celsius, right? So if they were in anywhere near sea level – that water can't get above if if it's in its liquid phase, it can't get above 100 degrees Celsius. So that is not <laughs> enough to melt Doctor No, I would think. Especially if he has robot hands, that would, you know what I mean? That you can't melt you can't melt metal at 100 degrees Celsius. It sounds like that may not have been the most accurate portrayal of a death in the Bond world. Something that oh, I am course, sure will be an isolated incident as we explore this supervillain series. But I did want to contrast. Dr. No's probably fake death with two people who actually died from radiation exposure, uh, probably two of the most famous, even if you've never heard of them. And it's two scientists associated with the Manhattan Project, Louis Sloten and Harry Daglian. I am not. Yeah, I've not heard of them. Okay, so for those of you who follow along with the Manhattan Project, Louis Sloten was a Canadian physicist. And part of creating nuclear weapons, 
you had to take your plutonium or your reactive material, plutonium, uranium, whatever, and slowly bring it to critical mass without actually making it explode, because that's how you get it to weapons grade, is creating more and more and more through a bunch of physics and science that I neither understand nor probably have the security clearance to do. A tricky operation was to bring it to criticality, criticality, bleh. In order to bring it to the point of criticality, it was so complicated that the procedure was affectionately referred to as tickling the dragon's tail. Because you had to put this one kind of metal against another kind of metal, and if the two of them actually touched completely, boom. During one of these experiments, uh, poor Louis Sloten was demonstrating holding the two devices apart with a screwdriver, and then it slipped the two devices combined and there was a flash of blue light and Ah. everybody was still there afterward because it wasn't quite like the movies, but until they got it off very quickly. And then Sloten's left hand initially felt numb and tingling became increasingly painful since they estimated he had got somewhere around 15,000 rem of low energy x-rays. 500 rem is usually fatal for humans and ward. How much is, how many rem is an x-ray? Oh, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's minuscule. Like, if you flew from New York to San Francisco in an airplane, you would get the same amount of uh, radiation exposure as a single chest x-ray. Yes. Minuscule. So a full-body CT scan is one rem. Wow. And an x-ray oh, wow. is 0.01 rem. So poor uh, Sloten took... 15,000 rem all at once. Uh, His, yeah, so the hand that was holding the device that got it apart took on a waxy blue appearance, developed large blisters, and his doctors kept it packed in ice to limit the swelling, the pain. His right hand, which was further away from the radiation, suffered, you know, some version of these symptoms, but much lesser. That was the first kind of initial sign that something wasn't right. Nine days later, he was dead from acute radiation syndrome. Basically, he had sunburns all over the inside of his body from the amount of radiation he took. And his insides did, in fact, slowly, comparatively speaking, uh, slowly liquefy. Well, okay. Actually, in... Radiation poisoning, that's one of the syndromes. Um, you die from when that's how you die from acute radiation poisoning. There's this phenomenon called the walking dead. You have a few days of a quote unquote of days of walking dead because the 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 this high energy radiation disrupts all your DNA and all your um all your genetic material. So what happens is the faster the cells that multiply quickly and turn over quickly, die first. So your gut lining, sometimes a few types of neurons, your mucous membranes die off quickly. But the rest of your body is slowly dying. These cells can't turn over anymore. That The cells that you have are the ones you have. And when it's time for so them to be works? turned over, you're, they, they don't, and then you just die. You yeah. die in layers. One of the first ones, yeah. Yeah. One of the first cells to die are, are your, your blood cells as well. Right. Yeah. And again, this is comparatively speaking, because he was still dead in nine days after the accident. And that was after exposure to effectively a nuclear Mm. bomb without the bomb part of it. Just 
unshielded radiation. And keep in mind, that was only low-energy x-rays. That is nothing on gamma radiation or ultraviolet, which also get involved when you weaponize any of these things. Yeah. So That would be a terrible movie to watch, though. Nine, nine days of radiation poisoning. Uh, you know, there might be a movie about it. I'd, I'd have to look that up. But nine months to the day before Sloten's accident, another scientist on the Manhattan Project, I want to say Harry or Henry uh, Daglian, had been working on the exact same plutonium core, performing a different experiment, but also a criticality experiment to increase the yield. And instead of using, you know, one kind of metal, he used another. And again, this is nine months before he had dropped one of the blocks. The core briefly went critical. Now, he was exposed to a much less radiation than Sloten was, and he took nearly a month to die. Or this would be a more chronic radiation syndrome. This would have been kind of, you were looking like a Hiroshima situation, center of the blast versus maybe a mile away versus, you know, several towns away versus at the far periphery. It's something known as the inverse square law, meaning the further you are from the source of the radioactive exposure, the less overall damage and recovery time. Sounds like my worst nightmare. I, if, if you were to not do mm. one thing, it's to drop the plutonium. You had one And then job. the more you think about it, and then you, the more you think about it, I just know it. If I were to do the criticality experiment, I would totally drop the plutonium, because that's not one thing you're not supposed to do. Well... You will both be happy to know that this is not these criticality. I cannot say this word. These experiments are done by machines nowadays and often barely used at all. Much different methods. The original plutonium core that killed the two scientists was named Rufus. But after the deaths, it became called the Demon Core. And I have to tell you, I would watch a movie called The Demon Core Rufus. But despite these rather high-profile deaths, so we've compared and contrasted, you know, the Hollywood version, Dr. No, where it sounds like he, you know, he fell into an open reactor and would have been boiled to death pretty much instantly before any of this. But even if he had climbed immediately out, depending on how close he was to the radiation, he would suffer some form of radiation syndrome, and it might look like what happened to these two scientists. But nuclear power is a lot safer than I think a lot of us give it credit for being. First off, uh, the two most recent nuclear-ish disasters, the Three Mile Island and Fukushima disaster, are largely remarkable for how little damage happened. Nobody died in either of these events from anything nuclear-related. Now, work fa- workplace fatalities, sure, but... The actual nuclear exposure, acute radiation syndrome, nothing. Can, can you guys think of any other industry that can boast hmm. zero fatalities for two-thirds of their worst ever accidents? To be fair, I mean, that the Fukushima disaster was a part of, um, that was part of the, the, the tsunami, mm-hmm. right? That wasn't just a nuclear oopsie daisy. It was, it was a natural disaster, act of God or whatever you want to call it. And that was just roiled up in part of it. And I think they couldn't pin anything on an immediate radiation death, right? Is, is that right. Re- is right. that what so the paper shows? still be long-term radiation. You don't know the gentleman. But yeah. nobody has right. died from nuclear-related. As for Three Mile Island, right. the other core is still operating fine, and people still you know, work there. It's only one of the two towers that got and shut down. how long ago did it happen? So, Remind us, where is Three Mile Island? Dauphin County, Pennsylvania. 
in 19, oh, 1979. It was reactor number two melted down. Reactor number one is still operational. That's pretty good. I mean, I, in my mind, I only know of, uh, I only remember two nuclear reactors disasters. One is Fukushima. Really quickly. And then the, you know, the granddaddy of them all, Chernobyl. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, is Three Mile Island a relatively um, isolated island? Like, is there like a decent size distance between there and the mainland, I guess? You'd have to Google map it. I see. don't know enough about Dolphin to, to say how large it is. In both of these meltdowns, the public didn't get huge blasts of radiation. In fact, they barely got more than they'd have had from a single x-ray because the power plants can't hmm. blow up as nuclear bombs. That's impossible. They don't have enough fissionable material. Given all that, let's talk about people who willingly enter yeah. radioactive water. Although I don't know that he did I it think willingly. that's a good transition, yeah. right? Other than Dr. No. I said willingly. Ward, I have to ask if you were aware of this, because I know Proz wasn't. Did you know that there's such a thing as nuclear divers? Uh, I knew that there were commercial divers that work on on U.S. Navy equipment, not and not just vessels. They, they have equipment down in you know deep seaports. They're commercial divers who are specifically contracted to work on uh, U.S. naval vessels or in power plants to do cleaning, repairs, and inspections of fooling tanks, the reactor cores, um, nuclear submarines, and you know since a lot of these vessels are nuclear powered and on devices. The, dra- the trained divers go into the contaminated tanks instead of draining, working on, and then refilling them. So the tanks contain water for cooling the reactor, water for emergency cooling, water that drives the turbines, and it's all radioactive. And these are guys who are like, yeah, I'll repair it. We don't have to drain it. Don't worry. I'll just dive right in. So how did you learn about this? Well, I worked actually at a, at a local uh, hyperbaric chamber where we have a dive clinic. So we serve... All the actually all the divers in the in the San Diego area who get uh, their occupational medicine checks. So uh, deep diving, spending a lot of time down in the cold waters, um, does take a toll on the body. Now that's pretty badass because diving pretty safe industry because it's well regulated, but I, that is a dangerous environment. I mean, our bodies are not supposed to be alive under three atmospheres of water or, especially you know, not when it's radioactive. in the deep sea, that, especially not when it's radioactive. So I props to the, the gentlemen and ladies who can do this. Um, you you yeah. need some specialized Badass. gear, obviously, to go, well, to go diving in general, you need scuba gear. Uh, no, by the time I examine them, they're, they're in, in the t-shirts. Oh, they're, 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 they're not walking in, outfitted. They're not walking in with their tanks on. <laughs> As the reactor pools are filled with, you know, as we've already said, water hot enough to boil James Bond villains, divers wear specially constructed cooling suits equipped with tiny little tubes that carry cold water around the body to prevent overheating. So it's a circulation within the suit of cold water as they are in another tank circulating water meant to cool something. And they don't use scuba tanks. They use surface supplied air in the reactors, uh, they still have to use scuba tanks, presumably on the naval vessels. And they're connected via very thick umbilical cords, which supply both cold flowing water and air, and that have a bunch of wires to monitor them, uh, along with you know radiation detectors and an outer layer of vulcanized rubber, which is rubber that's oh, specially treated and not you know rubber that's holding up the Star Trek symbols. It sounds like they're... Um... Right, so, so they're snuba diving. Yes. So... We've talked about some of the injuries and damage you can get from this radiation and radiation diving, but 
Ward, you've worked, you're saying you work at a dive clinic. What are some of the more common or typical injuries that you would see with diving itself? recreational or commercial i think we talked about it in our um in our previous previous episode about uh barrel trauma and uh diving our bodies when you dive underwater a certain amount of feet is one atmosphere of water and it's really easy to get under you know four five six seven atmospheres of water which means to get that air into your body you have to compress that air into about the same amount of pressure. So there's a lot of pressures on all our body parts. And whenever there is a, a air pocket in our body, such as a dental cavity or our sinuses, uh, and you can't clear that little air bubble, that becomes a problem. So eardrums, um, teeth, sinuses, uh, they're common areas where there, you, could, you could suffer pressure trauma. So sometimes if you come up too fast or you don't come up, or if there's a, if your sinuses are plugged up, you can end up with uh, ruptured sinuses, Ooh. ruptured eardrums. Those are one of the more common, um, or oh, your teeth could explode. Yeah, actually. I still have nightmares somehow, about yeah, that. If you have five, five atmospheres of, of air in your, you know, stored up in one of your teeth, and then all of a sudden you come up, and the, that te- tooth could just explode on you. Also being chronically submerged in cold water, your ears in the on the inside can get. Um, have you guys heard of gentlemen heard of cauliflower yeah, ears? Get them when they get uh, tagged a few it, too many times. Yeah, like it's your body goes through inflammation and then calcification of inflamed body parts, especially in the cartilage of the outer ear. That's a cauliflower ear. But you can end up getting little little calcium deposits. We call them stalactite ears on the inside of your ear canal. Uh, that is a common common inflammatory reaction to commercial scuba divers who spend hours and hours down uh, down under and because commercial divers spend more time than you know your recreational dives it's a job it's a living it's a living <laughs> you can see a little uh, they're more prone to the all, all the other injuries that come along with scuba diving including you know nitrogen narcosis uh, decompression syndrome that sort of stuff. Now they almost they don't tend to get air embolism because air embolism usually happens when you when you descend or you know when you ascend too quickly and or you hold onto your breath and then a little air pocket bursts through your trachea and get into your blood supplies. Um, that doesn't tend to happen with commercial divers because they really know what they're doing and they have a more controlled environment. Okay, so they actually get little stalagmites in their ears of cartilage. That's not on the cartilage. It's on the in on the external acoustic canal. So it's Are in the permanent? in Did that ear canal before the eardrum. That? They get collections of, of of calcifications. They can be removed, but it's outside the scope of. You'll have to go to ENT to get those, those removed. So yeah, that's that's definitely something we yeah. haven't covered before because I don't think we've talked a lot about commercial divers that much. They're definitely a very small and select population, and they have their own unique needs. As we that's said, right. the average X-ray delivers like 0.01 rem, or about maybe 20 millirems, and most people are exposed to somewhere around 300 millirems, so about 30 rems of radiation. Over the course of a year, whether you go from x-rays, scans at the airport, just casual radiation from being on a plane or out and about, uh, some of these divers receive hundreds of millirems just, just during various projects, which is why they're always wearing those badges. And current government regulation allows them to be exposed 
to up to 5,000 milligrams annually, but most divers try to keep their numbers no higher than 2,000 a year. I don't think that's a job you can do in, into your late Imagine 60s. Well, worth- annual, let's, let's ballpark. Annual starting salary for a novice, <sighs> you know, commercial radio. <laughs> Maybe a 100,000 or so to 200? $1 million. <laughs> Not bad, Praz. Uh, that's actually the most experienced atomic okay. divers can make around 100000 a year. The pay typically starts right. at about 30000 a year. That's below poverty lines in California in some cities. Are either of you familiar with the Radium Girls? No. The Radium so, Girls. They'd be glowing. Is that a <laughs> band I haven't band, heard of? Wouldn't it? We are the Radium Girls. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. No, back around 1917, there were a group of female factory workers who were getting jobs to do the hottest new thing, which is painting watch dials that had glowing hands. Pretty neat, right? Digital watches weren't invented yet. So, you know, you have watches that you can carry around in a newly industrial society with glow-in-the-dark hands. And each one of these hands was painted by women at three different sites in the United States. And because the paint they were working with was so fine and they had to work in such small conditions... They were told after each after each hand was painted to point the brushes on their lips, like basically lick the tips to give them a fine point again. And some of these women also painted their fingernails and face and teeth with this uh, same glow in the dark substance that was used. Yeah, because you know, hey, it's good <laughs> enough for watches. We're doing our you get glow in the dark nails. I wonder if I. Yeah, I wonder if I brush my teeth with this. What can go Except, wrong? as we mentioned before, the substance they were doing all these casual things with was radium, which was not known how dangerous radiation was at this time. So uh, these women, and there's five of them in particular, the radium girls, uh, these women suffered terrible, terrible things, such as having their jaw uh-huh. fall off. Like, you know when you think of a skeleton laughing and has to go pick up its jawbone? That's what kind of happened to yeah. these women. They got bone fractures and necrosis of the jaw, which oh. is a condition known as radium jaw. So this is chronic radiation sickness huh. as opposed to acute. Yeah. That's, that's even a, worse that's than a, the guys in That's a worse ending than, than, than Dr. No. At least his was well, fast and... Yeah, so depending on the women, the length of yeah. time these women worked in the factory, some of them just had no ill effects aside from various cancers over the years. Uh, Others suffered from anemia. The radium girls, the small group, all suffered from bone fractures, necrosis of the jaw, that radium jaw. And they also had to go for frequent health inspections, which subjected them to additional radiation. The case was settled. And the women, you know, got due diligence done by them. But to show that not all of them passed away rapidly, the last of the radium girls died in 2014 at the age of 106. She had survived, I think, like six different kinds of cancer. Uh, She didn't have her jaw fall off, but she did suffer some injuries to it. So a lot of things. And these are, you know, again, that's chronic radiation injury as opposed to acute. Just goes to show you, the hum- human body can yeah. be quite resilient. So that is, you that, never know. All that sprang from, you know, how accurate is this James Bond film? So, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed my my movie. I liked it. Hey, hey and you know what? 
they I had representation back even back in the days. Um, apparently, according to the show notes, uh, Doctor No was a Chinese German scientist. Ward, there we you haven't go. had a just the tip since uh, Pros rejoined us. Do you have any you'd like to share? You've been gone for a while. Yeah, I just came back from vacation. Um, I spent um, about a week in southern Thailand. You, when you picture a tropical paradise, calm blue waters and limestone mountains that are just shut out of the water, well, that's southern Thailand. That's Phuket and Krabi and um, the on the Indian Ocean side of Thailand. Climate change, you know, you're still reminded of it somewhat in that um, the corals aren't doing too well over there either. But for the time being, as of we're broadcasting this in January 2019, there are still live corals on that side. Oh, it was beautiful. That sounds lovely. And this was your first trip back to Thailand since we went... Oh, almost... 12, 13 years ago. So what changed yeah. from your first trip? I would say that the Thai hospitality certainly has not changed. I feel like there are more tourists in the more remote parts of Thailand now. So 12 years ago, uh, Dr. Josh and I went, out, went on a whirlwind tour of Thailand, and we went to some provinces that are not considered traditionally touristy, right? Kanchanaburi, even by the River Kwai, that was a, that was a quote-unquote tourist spot, but there weren't that many tourists. Nowadays, when you're even out in somewhat more far-flung provinces in Thailand, you can definitely see people who are not Thai. There was a coup when Dr. Oh, Josh and I were there. There was a coup in Thailand. There was a military coup. And you barely noticed. I was like, oh, what's going on today? Uh, there's rain showers and a coup, and <laughs> Thai is served at seven. It's just, we, we I didn't notice anything. The people seemed to be just carrying on and doing their thing. Interestingly, I was in I was on the side that was so across from Phuket. That was um so Aonang Beach is a is a beach getaway as well as um as a climbing destination because of the limestone mountains and Fifi Islands are the islands near Krabi province where there are just gorgeous limestone mountains that are lush and green that jutting right out of the Indian Ocean. That's it for They just call it Tuesday. That's it for this week. Next time we'll be back with another episode in our supervillain series. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with any sources we use in researching the episode. Happy travels, Give us everyone. a listen on Radio Public if you get a chance. It costs you nothing and makes us a little bit of money with every listen. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. Yay. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 